Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to a very strange Empire Podcast spoiler special interview special. A lot of specials there. This is our second spoiler podcast dedicated to Sam Raimi's Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, the 28th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and the second standalone outing for Benedict Cumberbatch's Assistant to the Sorcerer Supreme. After grossing almost a billion dollars at the worldwide box office since its debut in early May, the movie hits Disney Plus today, June 22nd, perhaps a little earlier than anticipated. But it gives us the perfect opportunity to bring you the spoiler special interviews I recorded a couple of weeks ago with two of the key creative forces behind the movie, co-producer Richie Palmer and writer Michael Waldron. Both men were great to talk to, chatting openly, for the most part, still some spoilers are tiptoeing around, about the creative process and decisions undertaken on the movie. First up is Richie Palmer, who has been at Marvel Studios for almost a decade now and who worked closely on the movie with Raimi and Waldron. He spoke to me about the various big swings the movie takes from Wanda Maximoff's crucial pivot to the makeup of the Illuminati, not to be confused with the Illuminantes from Miss Marvel. And we talked about where the end of the movie leaves Stephen Strange. So here you go, me talking to Richie Palmer. Do please. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on this Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness spoiler special by the film's co-producer, Richie Palmer. How are you, Richie? Good, good. Thank you so much for having me on the spoiler special. Uh, I couldn't be happier <laughs> to be here with you talking about the spoilers. The spoiler things. Who have you been able to talk about this stuff with over the last two years? Is it just uh, Michael, Sam, Kevin, Benedict, and that's pretty much it, right? Exactly. Michael Waldron. And that is it. No, Kevin, Sam. Even uh, Kevin doesn't know this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes uh, there's some stuff Kevin doesn't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's not a good thing if that's true. <laughs> Can you imagine? He watches this movie and goes, hang on a second. <laughs> Dude, you just, there's pizza balls in this movie? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the thing he would get. <laughs> Where are the pizza balls in this movie? Yeah, are there pizza balls? What are, what are you guys doing? I specifically said no pizza balls. This is an outrage. No uh, but there is there's so much to get into in this movie. This movie is packed. Um, maybe in a way that's kind of where I'm going to start. Was it always was it was was it even more packed at one point? It's two hours and six minutes, and it, you know was there a longer cut of this movie at one point? Uh, there. Not really. There's been some rumors floating around there that there was a two hour and 40 minute version of the movie. I think if you took all of the footage we shot and put it together, it might equal two hours and 40 minutes. But there was never an intended cut of this movie that was longer than two hours. And that was something from Sam Raimi on day one was like, this needs to be a two hour movie. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a roller coaster. And I think we delivered on that. So I think we packed it in to two hours on purpose to give you that claustrophobic roller coaster ride feeling that I, I think we achieved. Because it's it's a bit like the first movie in that regard, in that there's a sneaky point halfway through the first Doctor Strange where it becomes a chase movie in real time. And you almost don't notice right. it. It's, it's, it's almost imperceptible. And then suddenly you realize, oh, hang on, the last hour of this movie is right. the last hour of Doctor Strange's life. Uh, and this kind of does the same thing. It kind of hits the ground yeah. running very, very quickly. It does. It's a little different in that the first half of this one still feels like a roller coaster, but it kind of feels like a different roller coaster. And then you realize, oh, no, this one's going upside down and going in the dark and going backwards as well. (laughs) 
as the best roller coasters do. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, so this is obviously a Doctor Strange movie, but I, I want to start off properly, really, by talking about Wanda and Scarlet Witch, because... The Scarlet Witch. She is such a huge part of this film. And someone sent me today an interview that Lizzie Olsen did back in 2015. I don't know whether you've seen this this interview yourself. So she did this interview uh, in 2015 for Age of Ultron. And someone asked her on the junket, what would you like to do next? Where would you like to see Wanda go next? And she's like, well, you know, I'd love to do House of M. It's my favorite thing. But, you know, uh-huh. let's see where we can go. You know, I, you know, I'd love to see her you know, become insanely powerful, have two fake babies and then go nuts. And, but they'll never do that. They'll never do that. And then of course, (laughs) that's exactly what they've done in this movie. It's exactly what you guys have done in this movie. Um, So I want to talk about that. Was that always on the agenda right back from 2019 when the film was announced with the title, you know, back when Scott was attached as director, was Wanda always the antagonist of this movie? Yeah, I don't know if she was always the antagonist, but she was always an antagonist of Doctor Strange 2 when it was planned that she was going to be in the movie. To take it back further to Lizzie's comments in 2015, I don't know that there was the concrete plan of actually doing it. We always look to the comics. I'm a huge fan of the comics. I think we spoke about this last time we spoke. I'm a Mm. huge fan of her story in the comics. And, you know, in the comics, she goes even darker than maybe she did in our movie. Yes, she does. So it was something that we always wanted to see. But like Lizzie, I think everybody felt like, oh, we'll never do that because how are we going to do that? How are we going to get her to that point in these movies where she can go kill some beloved heroes and it's still fun for the audience and not, you know, too much. Uh, And then, you know, thanks to WandaVision and just how people fell in love with the character of Wanda Maximoff over the years, I think we got to do it in a way that honors the comics, but also honors the MCU. So I don't know. I I'm really happy that we got to see her do the things we got to do. This is the spoiler filled special. I I can't believe we got to see Black Bolt's head explode at the hands of the Scarlet Witch <laughs> in a Marvel Studios movie. Well, when you, you know, put Black it like Bolt that, <laughs> played by Anson Mount. Like we have Black Bolt played by Anson Mount in a in a comics accurate costume, mm-hmm. and the Scarlet Witch uh, rewriting his mouth off of his face to blow himself up. Like it's a, that's an amazing thing that I can't believe we got to do that. So yeah, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. It but does. I'm, I'm... <laughs> it, it, it does. I mean, listen, I, I want to dig into Wanda as well, but the, the fact is you, you, you brought them up there. You brought up, uh, you brought up Black Bolt. Uh, you brought up the, the Illuminati uh, who um, it's a really interesting lineup. First of all, I mean, can you, can you talk about a deciding that there was going to be a version of the Illuminati in this movie? Uh, B, deciding what that lineup was going to be, and C, killing them all, within, with the exception of Mordo, uh, within about five minutes of them arriving, which, which undercuts, I, I guess, any notion that this would be fan service, <laughs> because then you just brutally right. kill them. Well, the idea of the Illuminati, uh, the Illuminati is something else we always at Marvel wanted to see in a movie, and it's just about you know when and how, and not about if. I think we always knew we were going to see the Illuminati, and a version of that team in an alternate universe, you're allowed to include some members that if we were to do our 616 universe's version, I don't know that Reed Richards would be in there, especially right now in 2022. You know, this was kind of the perfect storm. I think we could only do what we did right now because of what we've done and what we're going to do uh, at Marvel Studios. And it's really exciting. We had the Illuminati on a big list of like Doctor Strange Easter eggs. Like here's things we could play with. And that came from, you know, Kevin and, me and uh, the team, Eric Carroll, our other executive producer on the project, 
And then when Michael came in and kind of had this list of things to play with, he was the one that was like, oh, we're doing the Illuminati here. Uh, and he was the one that really broke the movie with the Illuminati with that moment where Black Bolt's head explodes and she just goes to town on those guys. Uh, that was all Michael. Um, Sam Raimi, of course, had the specifics of, you know, how do you kill Black Bolt? How do you kill Reed Richards? So it really was the perfect uh, combination of everybody's strengths there. In terms of who was on the team, you know, like I was talking about Wanda a few minutes ago, we wanted to do what was best that honored the comics, but also what would be the best for the MCU. So we went through a million different permutations on a board in our office in Burbank of different uh, different lineups, different combinations, different things. We always kind of circled back to the same ones, though. And it was really the Reed Richards and the Black Bolt was that extra step that Kevin really helped us, you know, cross that line with them. Um, that was always something we just thought was a dream. Michael would write Reed Richards down many times in a way that uh, we didn't actually believe was going to happen. So that was Kevin definitely helped us get there. Uh, Patrick Stewart being in the movie as that specific version that we brought to life, you know, in the yellow chair and the green suit with the striped tie with, with the X-Men the version of the music. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, that was all an amazing uh gift for us like it's not even like we were just happy that we got to do that you know it was so we are sitting there thinking what the fans are going to want to see but really it was like what are we going to do right now that we can never do again and never would have been able to do before it's this version it's this lineup did you work out was you know so reed is representative there is a fantastic four in this universe presumably there's an x-men in this universe as well and these are the representatives of them who are part of the secret society Yes, exactly. Exactly. We definitely have a backstory for everybody in Universe 838, uh, whether those full stories will be revealed <laughs> in the future or today, you know, only time will tell. But no, they they each do have their own unique backstory to any version of those characters you've seen in the past. Um, even Captain Carter, who we've, you know, met a version of in What If, this is a different version. This is a different version than the Agent Carter we've met in the past. You know, everybody has their own slightly different version. I don't know how much I want to reveal because it is a lot of, you know, me and Michael and Kevin and Sam figuring all that stuff out and maybe some stuff will be told in the future. Uh, but, but as Reed said, this is definitely a version of Reed Richards that has a wife and children. Yeah. That was exciting for us because I don't think we've ever seen a version like that, you know, in a movie before, or even in an animated series before it's always just the classic fantastic Four. So to go to a world where we can even allude to Franklin and Valeria Richards, that's like, that's amazing. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's the Illuminati themselves are the sort of, it's a sort of decision that you could spend our entire time, uh, talking about. So, <laughs> so I'm very wary yeah. of that. But the choice of characters I thought was really fascinating in that you have alternate versions of people we've seen in the, in the MCU in the past. So obviously, you know, we have a different, different version of Peggy Carter. We have a different version of Maria Rambo. You have people that we weren't sure whether they MCU canon or not like Anson Mount's Black Bolt. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know how fondly in humans is looked upon at Marvel headquarters. <laughs> nope. Um, and then you have people who were outside the MCU, people like Professor X and, the introduction of of Reed Richards, I thought, was really interesting. That this is the place that you introduced Reed Richards, uh, and this yeah. is the place that you really, you know, you you got the Baxter Foundation in there as well. So you've got little Easter eggs pointing towards the Fantastic Four, but you don't do what I thought you were going to do, which was that this was going to leave the door open for the Fantastic Four and maybe even the X Men and mutants coming into Earth six one six. Was that on the board at any point? 
again, Michael wrote a lot of versions of Reed Richards uh, in this movie, so I'll leave it at that. But no, I, I think getting to introduce them and kill them, and this is me speaking for just me personally, you know, mm-hmm. that was us telling the audience, uh, like America Chavez tells Doctor Strange, rule number one of the multiverse, you don't know anything. So just because you're seeing something in this movie doesn't mean anything for the future or the past just just have have some fun but also be scared of what that means like that's or at least that's what america is trying to tell strange but no it's true it's like any with the multiverse is a dangerous concept not just for our characters but for us because it means anything is possible yeah so what does that mean for our future uh you know we don't want to be too beholden to anything we want to have some fun with this stuff the multiverse should be fun it should be opportunities for fun storytelling and to do things like show Black Bolt in the comics accurate costume and have his head explode or introduce Reed Richards or see Patrick Stewart again as Professor Xavier. You know, I, I've been at Marvel for uh, about nine years now. Uh, before I started there, I was the biggest fan in the world of the movies because it was like, oh, the, the, the Marvel movies, the Marvel Studios, Marvel movies are like doing things that they just were doing things differently than the previous superhero movies in terms of like just giving the fans what they want but not in a way that felt like fan service you know yeah so it felt like we got to do that again by doing these things introducing reed richards and having it literally be if you google reed richards it's a picture of john krasinski with a beard based on you know some of the more recent comics we were like oh we're gonna do that of course we're gonna do that like it was just our way of just having the most fun as possible that we could have and hoping that the fans liked it i think they did like those uh, appearances and those versions of those characters so it's awesome but again what what could we do only at marvel studios with professor xavier put him in the yellow chair and then kill him brutally and then kill him brutally <laughs> have have a demonic mindscape version of the scarlet witch rip him in half and just yeah. leave him catatonic <laughs> yeah which again is something that um i i, I I've, I've seen the film a couple of times and but it's only come to my attention since the second time i've seen the film because I, I i assumed that wanda <laughs> just snapped his neck you know as you do you just snap his <laughs> neck but it seems that she rips his head in half uh which is yeah. which is wild um and introduces another uh thought which is you know, this is this has got a lot of horror imagery. It was it was built. We talked about this in the past as uh, the first horror film in the MCU. You know, and there's an awful. Wanda does an awful lot of horrific shit in this film, Richie. So how do you, how do you tread the the line with the censors? How do you how do you get to the point where Wanda Maximoff rips a, an old man's head in half and, and that's it? That's a PG thirteen or a twelve A. Yeah, I don't know. There was honestly not not even one thing that we had to pull back on for the rating report. I think we were right on the line. And there was some stuff that they they asked, uh, can we see that again after you guys are done with the effects? But there was nothing that we had to pull back on. I think Sam, you know, Sam's a genius when it comes to this stuff. He's made a lot of horror movies. And mm. from day one, it wasn't just about horror, horror, horror. It was about fun horror. It wasn't going to be yeah. too scary, uh, dreadful. It was always going to be fun with him and he always wanted to keep it fun. So I think his instincts just led us to a place where it was right on the line anyway, uh-huh. uh, which is right where we like to live, right on that line of too much <laughs> and just enough. <laughs> um, one more Illuminati question, I, I promise, and we'll move on to, uh, to, to something else. But uh, again, you're dealing with different realities here. Wanda, in the comic books, as you know, is a mutant. Her father is Magneto. Was that something that you toyed with at, 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 at any point, introducing this to a Wanda who was a mutant, who had a dad who was Magneto, or was that just too much heavy lifting to do? Well, uh, I don't know that it was ever 
seriously talked about again that uh, that Waldron's got a head full of crazy ideas. So uh, I'm not going to say those things never came up in conversation, but I think once you start getting into Magneto and explaining mutants, you know, I think that the Illuminati appearances in this movie are pretty self-explanatory. I think you get them, and you know, I think it's all right there for you to go any further with it, and you know, try to explain that stuff might have detracted from the experience. However, who's to say in this universe, you know, that's a different Wanda than our Wanda with a different backstory. There is a uh, mm-hmm. Professor Xavier there. There are mutants. There are Inhumans. So you got to believe she definitely has her own version of that story going on. And again, kind of digging into the backstory of 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 this Wanda, yeah. of the A three eight Wanda, is really interesting because she seems to be a housewife. She has she has these two kids. She right. has Billy and Tommy, uh, who we know that our Wanda. I'm going to say that for, for for to clear up confusion. Our Wanda yeah. has conjured those kids from from nothing. Um, did you, and Michael, have discussions about? where the, each of those kids came from in the different universes. You know, the, the Vision is only mentioned a couple of times in the movie. For example, we don't see him. Uh, yeah. And this Wanda seems to have taken a very different path. She's, she's got powers, but she doesn't seem to be an Avenger. Right. Yeah, we believe that um, the 838 Wanda had some children and kind of retired and was happy living uh, a life with her family and didn't need to prioritize being a superhero uh maybe because of the illuminati maybe because of some other stuff um not to derail but you know this is a world where ultron seemed to work the way that tony stark intended him to work in age of ultron a suit of armor around the world you know tony was trying to get the avengers to retire in age of ultron so imagine this is a wanda that around that time say this is a world where tony cracked ultron and it worked and they're like all right whoever wants to retire and go home can and then the <laughs> illuminati kinds to come to rise behind the scenes pulling the strings but i like to think it's just a, a little bit of a better world for whatever reason and wanda was able to go and have the life that she deserved yeah um we as the audience don't know who the father of those children are in this universe but we believe it, it was probably a more natural situation for Wanda and less chaotic. Uh, and that our Wanda, the 616 Wanda, probably had the most chaotic life out of all the Wandas in the multiverse, which is why she was so, you know, so uh, on her mission in this movie was to go to peek into the multiverse and have all these dreams of other universes and find out that yours is the messed up one. Your life is the one and all the other ones are nice and you could have had a, a nice life that you only could have dreamed of, but you're the one that didn't get that life. Like mm-hmm. that, that's pretty uh, maddening. Yeah. It's enough to send anyone over the edge, I, yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and, and just going back to the idea of Wanda becoming the main antagonist of, of the movie, uh, before yeah. we talked about, before we talk about Dr. Strange um, is <laughs> how have you perceived the reaction to that decision to have Wanda be the antagonist. Uh, it seems that it has divided some people. That there are some people yeah. who think it's it's a great way for the character to go. There are others who think maybe feel it's maybe a, a bit abrupt or maybe in some way contradicts even the end of WandaVision. Even though you have the setup with the Darkhold and you have the setup with her using the Darkhold to search for for Billy and Tommy. Um, mm-hmm. This must have been something that you guys you guys talked about about pacing yeah. that that turn. Yeah, and uh, I love a divisive reaction, by the way. The, the Last Jedi is my favorite Star Wars movie, so I'm a fan <laughs> of uh, divisive reactions and divisive fan conversations. But we definitely worked closely with that team, with Mary Lovanos, our producer on WandaVision, and Jack Schaefer and Matt yep. Shackman, uh, not to drop all the names. But no, we, we had many meetings with them, and we believe that it was a true handoff of the character. And 
again, getting to the point where we can just have fun with the Scarlet Witch being the villain of a Marvel movie. Um, I know we like to think that it's all right there for you. It might take a, a few times watching it, but it is. We do think that it's more of a handoff from uh, WandaVision to our movie than maybe 49% of the fans right now out there think it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. It's not just the cheat of, oh, she has the dark cold now and it's corrupted her. It, it is much more than that. It's deeper than that. It's not just that the dark cold corrupts. Of course, the dark cold allures you and does corrupt you by putting these ideas in your head. But I think that she was already on the path in that show, you know, and I believe we were delivering on some of the promises set up in that show. I think the moment where she turns all those guns onto Agent Hayward's head, you know, you a lot of people out there wanted to see her just pull the trigger, which was a little harsh in that moment. But I think now in our movie, you actually get to see her pull the trigger. I think she's been a long time since Age of Ultron been threatening to do something. And I think that our movie was finally getting to deliver on her doing that thing that she's been threatening for so long. I, I, I think that's I think that's true. Absolutely. Because you think also the way she leaves Agatha, what she does to Agatha. Uh, and I think there's a, a thread. And I'm, I wonder if this is something that you talk about uh, with Kevin and with all the other producers and all the other movies and, and TV shows in phase four. There seems to be a thread that runs through a thematic thread that runs through phase four at the moment about guilt and consequence. And Wanda is, I think, really the first major character in phase four to suffer consequence uh, for her actions. I mean, she imprisons an entire town, mm-hmm. which is horrific. It's the act of a supervillain. Uh, and here she kills all sorts of people and uh, and she <laughs> suffers consequence for that. Is that something you, you're talking about? This, this idea of yeah. people having read in their ledger and paying the price for that, ultimately. 100%. 100%. It's because phase four is all a reaction. And I don't mean on our part as filmmakers. I mean, the characters, it's a reaction to the trauma of Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, you know, you were still feeling those effects in these movies years later. It was also something we spoke to Lizzie about Elizabeth Olsen every step of the way that for her, Wanda's whole journey is leading to a moment of accountability. And we think she's gotten there. Uh, I also saw, I saw a meme the other day that was comparing her and Peter Parker. And it's like, what happens when you lose everything? You know, some people uh, handle it differently than others. Peter Parker, you know, dove into the persona as Spider-Man at the end of No Way Home. He's completely let the Spider-Man persona take over as a response to uh, his loss and his trauma. For for Peter, of course, being Spider-Man means going and being the greatest hero of all time. Wanda's version was leaning solely into being the Scarlet Witch, which, as we found out from Agatha, from the Darkhold, uh, through Wanda's, you know, self-discovery, that, that's the opposite. It's <laughs> the worst villain of all time. That's a destroyer of worlds. You know, she's aware, like some, she's aware now, oh, I'm supposed to be this god. I, I've always known this kind of under the surface, but it's now been told to me. And now my way of dealing with my loss and trauma is just going full into what I am, which is the Scarlet Witch. So I'm going to be that. Of course, in our movie, she's like, I don't want to be that. I want to go be with my kids. So leave me alone. But like, I'm just letting you know that I am the Scarlet Witch. So yeah, don't mess with me. This is me being reasonable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's interesting because, yeah, whether it's Spider-Man or the Scarlet Witch or uh, Black Widow after Civil War, you know, it, this this phase does feel like it's about our heroes coming into their own on their own, all figuring out their places in the world. And a lot of them are lonely now because of the losses suffered during those Avengers movies. 
And this, Richie, brings us very nicely 20 minutes into this interview to talk about Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange, <laughs> who's the loneliest of all. No, after the Avengers movies, he's the loneliest and hardened. You know, he's been through it more than anybody else. And he has this weight of the world on his shoulders after those movies. You know, he he uh, he wasn't in Avengers Endgame for so much of the movie. But when he was there, it was one of the most powerful moments in any one of our movies, which mm-hmm. was him telling Tony Stark, this was the way, man. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Sorry, I helped you get here, but this was the way you're going to save us all. But uh, of course, by sacrificing yourself, you know, so his his actions, his heroic actions, Dr. Strange, as usual for Dr. Strange, led to an, ev- an even bigger consequence, to use your word. Like it, he suffered just as many consequences as Wanda, but he does it under the guise of being a hero. So I think he lets himself get away with making those choices that you know, other people might not be able to. But there's also a really interesting element of Strange's persona and which and the, and, and the decisions that he makes, which is his arrogance. So he thinks this this Strange, 616 Strange, is a Strange who hears all these tales. I mean, he's the guy who has to be holding the knife, right? And he is the guy who hears all these tales about what happened to other Stephen Strange's, you know, he sees the Defender Strange, who was, who was, you know, in a moment of weakness, lost his life trying to save America, but, you know, gave in, tried to take her power and ultimately paid the price for it. And 838 Strange, quite frankly, turned into a megalomaniacal mm-hmm. Egypt and tried to kill everybody and had to be, um, had to be eliminated. And mm-hmm. despite all of that, he, you could read it two ways. One, you could read it as he, despite all of that, he still chooses to use the dark hold because maybe he thinks nothing will happen to him, that the bill won't come due. Or mm-hmm. you could look at it as he's being even more heroic because he is willing to run the risk of what the dark hold might do to him. Uh-huh. Those are fascinating discussions <laughs> that you guys, again, must have been having in, in, you know, in the making of yeah. this. No, yeah, and that's a great question because I love talking about this stuff. So it's fascinating. I think at the beginning of, the, of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, his arrogance was actually catching up to him a little bit. I think after Endgame and after No Way Home, I think he was actually starting to feel a little bit like, oh, when when is going to be the time where I make the call and it goes bad? I think you feel that a little bit at the beginning of the movie. I think uh, it's exemplified in for personal reasons in his relationship with Christine. He, you know what? He didn't make the right call there. He let the the woman that he loved get away and uh, for because he thought he was making the hard choice and he was doing the right thing. You know, so even though it's a personal thing and it's not risking trillions of lives, that that I think hit him hard after again the events of Endgame and No Way Home. Take a step back further. When he meets those other strangers that you just mentioned, I think at first Defender Strange, he's like, Well, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that. Then when he hears about 838 Strange, I think he realizes, oh, I, I guess I could do that. And then by the time he meets Sinister Strange, I think it's very clear to him that he could go that way. And I actually think that Sinister Strange, I think he would have ended up like that guy. If America didn't fall into his life the second that she did at that wedding, if he went home back to that goddamn haunted house, as Sinister Strange said, and started stewing in his own BS about why did I lie? What am I doing? Let me see what I could do. Maybe my other lives are real. Maybe around the same time, every Strange was learning about the multiverse. You know, I feel like he realized he could have ended up like that guy. Having said that, when the only way to save the day when the only way to go save America's life is to use the Darkhold, I don't think it's his arrogance that nothing bad's ever going to happen to me. I think because of the journey of this movie, he's saying, 
screw it. I'm going to do it and damn the consequences. Mm -hmm. Like at this point, I'm aware there's going to be consequences to these actions and I don't care. I'm going to go do it because it's what I have to do. And you know what? That's my shit. I'm Dr. Strange and I'm the only one that can do that. I'm the only one that could do that because if Wanda did it, she'd go bad. And you know what? Maybe I'm going to go bad too. And one of these guys is going to have to kill me one day, but so be it. I'm going to go do it to save that kid because that's what matters right now. So I, I think that, uh, this movie had a, a very subtle arc for him, like a lot of great, you know, we talked about Indiana Jones a lot. And I, I think in those movies, Indy always had very subtle arcs, but mm. they were there and they were actually really powerful in the end. That's how I feel about Strange in this movie. I think by the end, he accepts his role, just like we were just saying that Wanda does or Spider-Man does, you know, they accept their role as the hero that only they could be. And for Strange, it's, you know what, I'll take on the darkness to come out the other side. And if it doesn't work this time, I guess it's not going to work this time, but screw it. Mm. Which brings us, Richie, to the end. Uh, what is going on uh, at the end of the movie? Uh, first of all, let's let's talk about the 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 ending of the film before we get to the post credits yeah. thing uh, with the third eye. Uh, so I have a couple of theories. Uh, mm. One is that that is somehow the Darkhold manifesting within him, and it is revealing perhaps a more reckless, maybe more antagonistic version of himself. There is another the school of thought. Exact, the heavy toll. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> there is another school of thought that it could be somehow sinister, strange, somehow possessing his body. Uh, uh, what's what's going on there? What can you say? Uh, well, I don't want to confirm or deny either of those because they're both great theories. Uh, I do believe personally that it's more. As Sinister Strange said, the dark hold exacts a heavy toll, not just on its reality, but on its reader. And Wong at the end, too, is like, are you good? You you dreamwalked into your own corpse to you know travel <laughs> amongst universes. And then we learned earlier in the movie, Reed Richards is saying, you know, you, you shouldn't travel back and forth between universes because if you do something in that other universe, you're kind of uh, destroying the barrier between both and they're both going to get like, don't do that. So I, I think he broke every rule they told you not to break in the movie. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's having a consequence on him. Uh, which which may go to very, very interesting places. Which may go to interesting places. And again, if he's the guy that's now saying, I'm Doctor Strange and this is what I do, and it's to accept and embrace darkness, but still somehow be a hero, you know, maybe he's trying to toe that line going forward. I guess uh, we'll find out. We shall see. Uh, what does the third eye do? What is it, does it allow him to just uh, see in 3D even more than... <laughs> you know, we, we did a lot of research in the comics on the eye of Agamotto and the strange when he does and doesn't have a third eye. Sometimes it's not necessarily evil, but there are times where he gets a big, ugly third eye on his forehead and it's clearly evil. Um, but it's all... Uh, I'll just... Uh, Defer you and the our listeners to the uh, to the d- comics for that one. <laughs> but there's definitely there's a dark side to it. It's not all. It's not just window dressing. There, yeah. there is a darkness to it. It's this idea that of uh, as Mordo says, uh, the bill comes due, and yeah. it's really interesting. That, and it's a very Sam Raimi ending because Sam, uh, whether it's the Evil Dead Two or Drag Me to Hell or you know even Dark Man, likes to leave his protagonists in a in mm-hmm. a in a pickle. <laughs> at the end of the movie. Um, was that always where you ended the film? Was there any discussion about the post-credits thing with, with Charlize Theron as, as Clea? Was, was, was that the ending of the movie at one point? Clea, Charlize Theron coming into playing Clea was always intended to be uh, the tag. Okay. That was always intended to be the tag. We did have other ideas for other endings of the movie proper, but the one that stuck and the only one we shot was the on, knees on the ground third eye on the forehead screaming in agony that was the only ending we ever shot for the movie so we played with other versions in our heads and stuff but the one we shot was that and then yeah cleo was always meant to be 
the tag, you know, how those two work together and what they mean for each other and how much or how little to explain about how they're connected was a little bit of a debate, maybe debates even strong because it's not like there was uh, arguments about it, but that was kind of more things we played with too, you know, how, how much do we explain about how these two scenes are connected or how much do we leave for the viewers to try to figure out? How much time has passed between the two of them as well? How much time has passed, how exactly they're connected. Yeah. Everything about it. We wanted to, uh, we were playing with the audience a little bit with that stuff. Uh, and I know I've got to let you go, but, uh, can you talk about the significance of, of, of introducing a character like, like, like Claire, who Doctor Strange fans will know, but perhaps your average cinema yeah. goer might not, and they'd go, "Hang on, that's Charlie's Theron." What? And now they're leaping. Isn't that Dormammu's dark? Dem- what the hell is going on? Uh-huh. <laughs> can, you, can you talk talk us through what was what's happening there and who Claire is in this world? Yeah, Clea is uh, in our world. Who she is in the comics? She's Dormammu's niece. She is a goddess from the dark dimension, and she is. Doctor Strange is, well, I can't say this yet, uh, even though uh, I'm sure we don't. <laughs> in the comics, she is Doctor Strange's greatest uh, paramour, but also his greatest ally and his probably most formidable ally and his most equal of anyone that he deals with. I mean, she is his be all end all, not just on a romantic love interest way, even though they are that to each other in the comics, but she's also the one person that could kind of put him in his place and show him up on the battlefield. And like, she is. Uh, she she shows up to give him the business in the comics and they have a really great relationship. Uh, she's a character we've always wanted to introduce. Charlize playing that character was a dream we all had since the first Doctor Strange movie came oh, out. Really? That I I still can't believe has come true. I mean, that's the that's one of those like can't believe that uh can't believe it actually exists on screen right now kind of things. That's wild. So you've had it on the board yeah. for ages. Charlize Theron yeah. is, is clear. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was, that was something we manifested. I'm not sure. Uh, and she was in right away and loved what we had to do and loved the costume and worked with us on the costume and the look, the hair and makeup, you know, and we were all, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch included. We were all giddy, uh, getting to work with Charlize the way that we did because she was so into it, um, with us and we were into it. It, it was great. And those two together are great. Charlize and Benedict it's a what a formidable presence like that's why too uh, the last frame uh of this movie the last frame of the tag rather of them two standing side by side in full costume and he's got a weird third eye on his forehead I mean I I don't know it just makes me happy (laughs) indeed and then of course you got the last frame of the movie which is Bruce Campbell looking directly (laughs) at the camera which, yeah, that was great. <laughs> which, which, which tickled me. Uh, so yeah, he's, that was great. He's beaten Deadpool to it by breaking the fourth wall in the MCU. There you go. That's right. Uh, that was great, too. That was just one of the most fun days on set. And that was all Sam and Bruce just having fun, riffing on cool ideas. What could be a tag? Uh, that was Sam always wanted Bruce to be the tag of the movie. And, of course, no one's going to argue with him. Uh, but it was fun seeing the different ideas those two guys could come up with in the last 20 minutes of a day. <laughs> kind of thing <laughs> there's an easter egg there's an easter egg in that tag i don't think anybody's found yet that i want to go back and watch the movie again there's an easter egg in the bruce campbell tag if you pause the movie and look around it's like an i spy game go uh go look out for it there's something there's something in that frame is it the car it's not the car the car is in the movie Where's- the car is in the movie in two different places in a really funny way i don't know you you can barely see it in universe 838 but in sinister strange's universe you can see it floating 
as one of the floating cars that Christine and Stranger walking by. Oh my god! All right, okay. I, yeah, well, I, I need to go see the movie again anyway. Clearly, yeah, go Richie, see it again. But, yeah. but and in in A three eight, the car is there, but it's hidden in such a crazy way that our production designer Charlie Wood and his uh, his props team led by Barry Gibbs they came up with this crazy idea how to get the car into A three eight, and it's really funny and fun and i don't know how anybody's ever going to find it but i'm not going to tell you right now uh because somebody will find it but then again the bruce campbell tag there's a fun easter egg for fans of the evil dead movies okay all right i'm on it i'm on it uh, going there straight after this and then the, the i know i said last question but i want to ask this because it's just it's just no, occurred no. to me um Let's do it which is uh a lot of people have been saying this that you have three different peter parkers in No Way Home and they all look different and you have every Doctor Strange, every Wanda we see every, uh, looks like the actor who plays him in the MCU. Was there discussion at any point about addressing that, about maybe having a Strange who looked different from Benedict, who maybe was even played by Benedict uh, at one point? Yes and no, not not in any real way. You know, I think that that's just the difference between, because Loki as well, there's different Loki different, Loki's. different actors. There's like alligator just, Loki. <laughs> just, yeah, just to add uh, ammunition against us. No, uh, <laughs> the Lokis are different. The Spider-Mans are different. We have story reasons that Michael and I could talk about for an hour about why it makes sense for characters like Loki, who is a inherently chaotic being. You know, that was always Michael's thing. Like Loki is pure chaos. So it makes sense to him that in the, grand calculus of the multiverse like on the on the <laughs> multiversal spectrum yeah he would be one that looks like different people there's definitely you know if you go to the spider-verse comics or even like what was it in the early 2000s when it was like uh what was the spider-man comics the other or like even mm. the, just the start of the idea that there's these other spider figures out in our universe and in the multiverse and they wasn't always Peters. It wasn't always people that looked like Peters. I don't know. I looked at the comics and I actually think it makes sense to me just as a comics fan, why the Peters might look different. Mm -hmm. I think the truth is we had a two hour movie to tell the story (laughs) and and we have Benedict Cumberbatch and Elizabeth Olsen, who are literally two of the great actors of our time, let alone of superhero movies uh, that we weren't going to squander them. But I will say if we went to any more of those like paint universes, you know, they, I think as you get further and further away from, should we say the sacred timeline? As we get further and further away from 616, our base <laughs> universe of the MCU. Yeah. I think they could, there's a room for even the most stalwart characters like a, like a Steve Rogers to maybe not look like Chris Evans. I think there is room as you move further away from the main timeline from the main universe, but I think it depends on the character. It depends on the actor and it depends on, frankly, uh, the medium we're telling the story. <laughs> so all of the above, but I like that question. too. Amazing. Uh, all right. Well, Richie on, on that note, uh, as ever, I've got so many more questions, but, uh, I do have led to go. Uh, it's I mean, been I'm down pleasure. whenever you want to talk, I'm here. I love to talk and it's fun with you because you're a fan and we get to actually talk about it. Like, nerds so that's always fun that's a dangerous thing to say because I mean, we, we could talk for another hour but, uh, but <laughs> i mean whenever you want man it's an honor to be on your podcast with you oh truly. bless you thank you so much indeed and uh well if you do have time for a quick speed round shall i just throw three questions yeah, at you real quick all right let's do speed round all right so was there ever a wong variant and um, we get to see wong and, and coming up his storyline must have been interesting pairing him with wanda taking him to mount wanda gore uh, there were ideas for Wong variants, but not uh, uh, the way you might think. I think some concept art leaked or something, which is why I don't mind talking about it. Something leaked that showed that there was a Defender Wong, 
uh, at one point that we thought of. But then as the story progressed and as we wanted the story to be really personal between Strange and America, at least as pertains to Defender Strange and America's relationship, we, we weren't sure there was so much room to have a Defender Wong. It would have been in that opening sequence. Again, this was something that we talked about. We had designed a costume for, but then, you know, just serving the story of those two characters and how it progressed through the rest of the movie, Strange in America, we we ultimately decided to do what was best for those two characters. Uh, it would have been fun to see Defender Wong or an alternate Wong, and one day I think we will see an alternate Wong uh, in some capacity. But yeah, that so that that was a thought that came and then unfortunately just went because we wanted to really give Strange in America their due. And then you've got this this uh, the storyline with Wong. Uh, it would be the most it would be the easiest thing in the world to make Doctor Strange the Sorcerer Supreme, and you don't, <laughs> and you and he still isn't by the end of this movie, and he may never be in the MCU. Uh, and I think that's a really bold decision to to, to stay with Wong. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, to clarify that too, Strange was never the Sorcerer Supreme. I think that after the Ancient Ones. Uh, demise in the first movie. I don't think anybody was clamoring for it, let alone Strange. I think Strange is like, I'm the most powerful sorcerer. What do I need the title for? Like, I think he kind of doesn't really care until Wong's like, oh, I'm going to do it. You know, off screen, you know, when Strange is gone for five years and Wong's like, well, I'm not going to let nobody be the sorcerer supreme. This is my interpretation of it. But, you know, I think Strange, I think everybody in that world probably assumed it would be him. He was like, I got bigger fish to fry. I'm not going to go, uh, what do you want me to go on like a vision quest and go become the sorcerer supreme? Like, I'm going to go figure out how to throw snakes at villains. Uh, you could go do that <laughs> stuff. And then, of course, when his best friend that was the librarian of Kamartage, who is actually, you know, a threat to strange in that regard like wong is a pretty formidable guy he's not just the librarian but i think strange was probably a little after the fact like oh damn it i could have had that what like uh that's my take on it at least <laughs> but yeah wong i think it makes perfect sense that it would have been wong i think it makes perfect sense that it would have been wong and in avengers endgame you feel like he's in charge of all those sorcerers you know you don't strange says that and when wong is the one that brings the cavalry yeah, absolutely. That, I know that's the Marvel one shot. I think I want to see most. I want to see the ten minutes between that's uh, cool. everyone coming back, and then Wong has to organize everything. Wong organizing everybody—that's awesome. Or even <laughs> I thought you were going to say the journey of Wong, Wong quest, <laughs> the the Wong quest to become the Sorcerer Supreme, having to go meet the Vishanti and like learn all the secrets and be bestowed with the power of the Sorcerer Supreme. That's what, Now I want to see that too. Yeah, but I, I also suspect that would be quite an easy job interview because, you know, <laughs> well, you know, sit down, please, Wong. Uh, we've, we've seen your CV. It's, it's, it's a good CV. You're clearly a very talented sorcerer. There is one other candidate for the job. Unfortunately, he's dust. So <laughs> the job is yours if you want it. It seems to me that that's what, that's what happened there. But uh, yeah. uh, with Wong, there's, um, so there, there was no Wong variant. The only Mordo we see is the Mordo variant of course, in 838. Uh, Strange makes a reference to the Earth 616 version of, of Mordo uh, going mad and trying to kill him uh, constantly, which we don't see. Did we see it at any point? Uh, that was something else we talked about, and we had costume designs. And again, just like Defender Wong, there was a lot of discussion about seeing 616 Mordo in this movie. But at the end of the day, uh, we, we worked early on with our editors Bob Murawski and Tia Nolan and Bob Murawski, who edited all of Sam's movies, worked with us early on in the story stages to kind of help us be like, again, like the Defender Wong thing, like you're detracting from your main characters by spending too much time here. Like uh, he kind of helped us uh, trim some of that 
out, so to speak, early on. So we talked about it and it never quite had a home. It never really had a good place. And, you know, the roller coaster feel of the movie that we talked about earlier, there just wasn't a lot of room to see that Mordo. And it's fine because now we get to believe that that guy's still out there somewhere. Uh, I want to talk about some of the visual uh, motifs that Sam introduces into the film. And the film begins, obviously, with that, that wide shot of the 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 arena surrounding the Book of uh, Book of uh, Fishanti. Mm. Uh, but then we, the first thing we see really is not strange, but America. Uh, we see the star on her back as she runs uh, as she runs along that 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 ridge. Again, that must be a very deliberate choice. Was that something that Sam was was keen to to emphasize her importance in the story right from the off? Absolutely, absolutely. It was. Yeah, that was all Sam. Everything Sam. That, he's the best and uh, carefully thinks all of those things through. You know, he said, I want to see the ponytail and I want to see the star on her jacket and I want to see Strange and American. This is the team and this is it. Like, yeah, it's all about just setting up so that five minutes later, this guy turns on her and you're like, wait, what? And you're on her side from the get go. And, you know, traveling throughout the movie with her uh, was very important for Sam. And their relationship was the most important thing for Sam. Our strange and America's relationship was the most important aspect of the movie for Sam Raimi. Obviously, when they meet up in uh, 616, uh, it leads very, very quickly to after that attack on Camartage, it leads to them tumbling through the, the, the multiverse. And was that something, I remember speaking to Scott on the first movie, Scott Derrickson on the first movie, and he was saying that the long, strange trip sequence at one point was really long. Well, not like an hour mm. long, but it was, it was longer than it is now in the film. Um, was it the same with the, the multiverse sequence where they're tumbling through all these different realms? Or is, is basically what you see, what you get? No, no, it might have been the opposite. We expanded it. We kept expanding it. <laughs> our our visual effects supervisor, Yannick Sears, was really spearheading that for us. And he kept like coming up with new ideas for new universes. We weren't going to see that many at first, I think, just because it wasn't, again, like Sam and uh, his editor, Bob, they would always keep us honest about like, what is the movie about? <laughs> what is the movie actually about? Can we please stay on? Uh, on the path with our characters don't detract too much yeah paint universe is cool to see but you know it is that and then once uh yannick would show us more and more examples of how cool these other universes could look it was like oh yeah no no put more and more and more uh so it, it was actually the opposite of that it was really led by we just want to see them turn into paint for a second uh we want to <laughs> see them in the animated universe the black and white universe we want all oh, let's hide in some living tribunals in there like we wanted to have fun with all that so it was it was only ever going to be as long as it was fun that sequence Okay. And then the last thing I wanted to ask you about is the music fight, uh, which is is glorious and very, very, very Sam Raimi. Yeah. Uh, was was that something that was, that was always in the script or was that something that, that, that Sam wanted to add? That was something that for about two years, Sam's longtime storyboard artist, Doug Leffler, who is a writer and director in his own right uh, and did us the honor of working with us as a storyboard artist because he's worked on all of Sam's movies as a storyboard artist. That's Doug Leffler. He came up with the idea for that sinister music fight like two years ago. And it was something that we we all felt was cool, but then kind of had on the back burner for a while. And our priorities were in other places. And they were like, we kind of just let Doug kind of like do his thing for a little bit. And we were kind of shooting the movie, whatever. Uh, and then it came up, it became apparent again, as it does with everybody involved with us and Kevin and Sam and Benedict and Danny Elfman, like, Oh, this is really awesome. What could we do? We worked with VFX. We, uh, we had help from Brian Andrews who directs, our what if series 
he came in to help us with the visuals of that. Uh, it was really a family affair at the end of the day for that sequence because we were kind of, it was towards the end, we were kind of done with the movie and we were just having fun at this point. And we had Danny was scoring the movie and we had some, uh, like I said, some some help from our other friends in the visual world. And we all just kind of worked together on making that what it was. And it was just us trying to have some fun. Again, this whole, I feel like a lot of the movie was just us saying, what can we do? What can, what's the most fun thing to do right now? And it was getting uh, Danny Elfman on the phone with our visual effects team and our animators and everybody. And Sam just, you know, we went through a bunch of different versions of that where it was fully score versus fully orchestra. And Kevin and Lou and Victoria were there for all these conversations too. And it was like, well, how much Beethoven do we want to hear? How much this? And it was just us having fun at the end of the day uh, with what that could look like. We're all big nerds when it comes to, we looked at a bunch of old Disney cartoons and we went into the Disney archives and looked at some short, there's a few, uh, uh, Disney Easter eggs in this movie too that we had stumbled across when we we're like peeking through the Disney archives for some of this musical stuff. I don't know. There, it was fun for us. So I hope people liked it because <laughs> it was definitely a point of the movie where it could, you know, we could just hopefully people are on the ride with us at that point and having fun, which I think uh, I've seen really good feedback on the music fights. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's glorious. It's exactly the sort of thing that, you know, when you've got uh, the, the most powerful sorcerer in the world fighting himself an even more powerful yeah. version of himself go for it you know it's 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 a sort of yeah. gloriously gonzo thing that uh that we love to see so yeah it's a uh, great stuff well richie on that note or should i say notes uh, i'm gonna right. let you go so it's been <laughs> it's been you. an absolute pleasure thanks for for tolerating my bombardment of questions no uh, i'm so happy about it thank you chris very excited to see where strange goes next with his third eye us too man us too pretty clear thank you Chris. thanks a lot bye-bye so that was richie palmer and now let's head straight into the next interview which is with multiverse of madness writer michael waldron a veteran of rick and morty he moved on to the strange sequel after pulling head writer duties on the first season of loki which we briefly allude to in this interview and we also talk about taking strange down memory lane about the specific strangers we encounter, and much, much more. I tried not to ask the same questions of Michael Waldron that I had posed to Richie Palmer. Some overlap, but otherwise, not too much. Michael's internet, I will say, was a bit spotty from time to time, so you'll hear glitches every now and again, but I think the gist is very much there for you to get. So here we go. Me talking to Michael Waldron. Revelations lie within. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on this Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness spoiler special by the film's writer, Michael Waldron. How are you, sir? Good, man. Good, good, thanks good. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, thanks for doing this. And thanks for taking down this little trip with me down memory lane, uh, which leads me to my first question. <laughs> Very nice. I don't remember anything. I, I don't remember anything about making this movie. It's all, I blacked it all out. It's Hang on, which, which Michael Waldron am I talking to here? Am I, I yeah. Am I not, the one, not the the one who wrote the movie. Uh, I killed him and switched places with him, uh, and now I'm. I took his place in the multi in in, in this universe. Okay, this makes sense. Uh, this makes a lot of sense. But let's let's give it a go anyway. Let's give it a, a good old college try, as they say. Um, so I, I mentioned memory lane there because what I wanted to do was um, weirdly enough, when I spoke to Richie Palmer, <laughs> we spoke about Wanda for ages, and we'll speak about Wanda. Obviously, we spoke about the Illuminati for ages. I think it was about twenty minutes before I asked a question about Stephen Strange. I want to do the opposite with you. I want to start with 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 Strange. I wanted to start with memory lane, and uh, which uh, is this really interesting idea. This way of showing 
us a little peek into Strange's romantic past with Christine. It you know, places emphasis and importance on the watch, which which comes in later on. And was the Strange and Christine relationship something that you really wanted to address in this movie? I I think there's a there's a school of thought that she's Rachel McAdams is great in the first movie, but perhaps that relationship isn't given the weight that it needs to have been given to set up the beginning of this film. It was, it, it was, uh, as I came on and as we, as we were looking at, okay, what can this thing be? I actually, in, in really studying the first movie and, and the great work that that team did, um, that, that was the relationship I, I guess I was drawn to for Steven, the, the most, I mean, in that, you know, not for nothing, one of the last shots, the first movie is he looks at that watch at that, at that broken watch. That is something um, left unresolved for him that I felt like we had a real opportunity to, to go back in and, and address, Um, you know, he, he's a, he's a great surgeon. He's a great superhero, but he does live alone in a goddamn haunted house, as he says. And, you know, I, 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 and Benedict and I both talked about this, you know, it's, it's interesting as, as you move deeper into the MCU and, and all these movies and TV shows we've made, it's, it's just like, what, what is the, what's the end result of all the stuff these guys do? Can saving the world make you happy? Does that result in a satisfying life? And that was something we wanted to explore in this movie. And Christine felt like the right way to explore it. And on top of all that, I just think Rachel is, is fantastic. I'm a huge fan of hers. And I felt like in a movie that had so much crazy shit going on, she would really be a weapon for us to come in and, and kind of be audience's eyes saying wait this is crazy (laughs) somebody can land a joke um and just bring some levity and a a human perspective to the crazy proceedings and with that uh you also have this idea that the the relationship is doomed to fail no matter what universe they're in uh strange and christine never quite work it out they're never, never even quite sure what this is yeah, for sure. And that, that was something that Sam and I both talked about and were drawn to the melancholy. <clears throat> I mean, I feel like one of the strongest feelings you can put on film is yearning. You know, it, it's that yearning, but maybe it isn't quite meant to be. Um, and there's always that feeling of, well, maybe in another life it would work out between us, but Steven really goes on a journey here and, and learns, well, shit, maybe, <laughs> maybe in no other lives. Uh, but what he does get from Christine, she unlocks something for him at the end, you know, face your fears. You're afraid to love someone. You know, when he talks to her at the wedding, he says, I, we couldn't be together because I made sacrifice. I had to make sacrifices to keep you safe. And Sam and I talked about how that's, that's a very Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man 
sentiment. But whereas Spider-Man, I think, is being really honest when he says that, I think Stephen Strange is a little bit full of it. Yeah. That's him. He's, he's really protecting himself from... Stephen isn't scared of giant monsters. He's scared of uh, human connection. That's, that's what can hurt you. Mm. And, and so by the end of the movie, he's able to be honest to her, with her and say... I love you. I love you in every universe. I just get scared. Um, that, that is the truth that he couldn't reveal to her at the wedding. Can you talk about, within that uh, about the, the memory lane idea, uh, about finding where did that idea come from, first of all, uh, to reveal both Strange's innermost thoughts, but also America's past with her, with her mothers and the, the moment that her powers first bloom. Where did that idea come from uh, for you? And um, can you talk about fashioning the, the, that scene between the two of them with, with the watch? Um, yeah, it's funny. By, by the way, how's my internet? Am I back? Am I you're good? Back. You're good. You're good. I think uh, you're good. That's how Marvel controls my spoilers. They're just like, <laughs> they constantly are dialing my latency on my internet up and down. <laughs> um, but... I think that idea that came from Kevin, I believe, in in a conversation. You know, we were were talking about something multiversal, um, you know, this this sort of thing that you might see in another universe. Um, So something sci-fi, you know, that that frankly is a little bit of a cheat (laughs) to, to get to to get to see somebody's past <laughs> memories because, because really what we wanted was a way to visualize America's past and her trauma without having to just drift into a flashback, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, like that was, that was the concern. And so this convention gave us that opportunity. And then we were like, well, we need a way into it with America and so we got that scene with Steven. And the funny thing is we, we were like, okay, this should just be a shot of Steven and Christine sitting at dinner. And Sam was like, I need something for these guys to play uh, at this scene together. So can you just write some, just whatever, just bullshit dialogue for them. And so I just wrote literally to me, what was bullshit dialogue of her? Well, maybe it's when she gave him the watch, uh, <laughs> just a little bit of banter back and forth Yeah, that suddenly we were shooting and it was like, it it was feeling like actually kind of pivotal emotionally. So yeah, as, as oftentimes it wasn't necessarily planned to, to be resonant, but, but it was, and I'm glad we got it. Indeed. And uh, I love also that uh, Stephen Strange is so smart uh, that yet when Christine slides him a, a watch-shaped package across the table, he goes, what's this? <laughs> it's a watch, my friend. <laughs> I know. I, I, well, yeah, it's smart in every way, but but emotionally so, you know, or or to his credit, maybe, maybe he's just playing dumb once, once yeah. the surprise. You know, the the funny thing about Memory Lane is I, and it's not in there. Well, my, my secret uh, history of, of 838 
is it's a little more of a police state. And you can see everybody's dressed kind of uniformly. It's like there's a little bit of an Orwellian feel to it. Yeah. And because I was always like, all right, what's the point? Why, why does this memory memory lane thing exist? And so I wrote a bunch of like essentially fine print that I do think we recorded, but it just does. You can't quite you can't hear it. But it's like the guy is saying in the background, he's like, uh, disclaimer, any memories uh, of uh, crimes committed or, or so and so can be admissible in a court of law. <laughs> and it's like this is memory lane is really the state's attempt to minority report you into uh, admitting a crime you committed. That's that's my dark secret about memory lane. And then uh, and then the Illuminati show up and and that's it for you. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Just wait for the novelization. It's all. <laughs> yeah. um, so when you when you started out in this project, and obviously there there had been a a pre existing version of the script, uh, did you did you rewrite from page one? Did you you know in terms of Strange's journey, what did what did you want to happen? What did you bring to it from from day one? It it was a and and again. Scott and Jade Bartlett, who was the original writer on it, they they had done great work. It was just a different, it was a totally different movie with a different villain and everything. And I and I think a different journey for Strange. And so yeah, I mean, I'm sure stuff certainly stayed broad strokes, but but really, you know, Sam and I dove in and and really focused for Strange just on his, you know, his, his ability to connect with others and work as a member of a team, you know, I, that, that, that notion of you have to be the one handing over the knife, you know, it, it's that, that was a potent to me recurring theme throughout the first movie. And you see that it's the case here again in our movie and as i tracked his behavior throughout the avengers movies i also felt like that was the case you know steven says i'll kill you guys before i give over the time stone mm-hmm. or i'd let you i'd let you die mm-hmm. he he then makes the decision to give thanos the time stone he then says to tony you know holds up the finger you know one one outcome it's steven really is the guy with the knife in his hand to me like like steering the events of infinity war and endgame and so what sam and i got excited about and and benedict as well was well okay what's fun about dr strange and what i thought scott did a great job in in the first movie was the way he ultimately beat the villain was maybe not through his fists, but through outfoxing him. Yeah. You know, he traps him in the, in the time loop and um, annoys him to death. Uh, and, and here we, we knew we were like, well, he, we don't want him to overpower Wanda. And it felt like a really character based way for him to defeat the villain would be kind of a literal handing of the handing over the of the knife. He, um, he empowers America mm. and says, you're the only one who can beat her. And in fact, that turns out to be true. Mm. And with Strange, there's, uh, there is 
there's a line that uh, Nico West says, Dr. West says to him, where he, you know, he, he says, was it the only way? Was the, the decision you made in Infinity War the, the only, was that the only play you had? And Strange says, yes. Um, and I think that's the truth. I think there is probably no other way that it, it would have worked out. But was that something that you wanted to explore uh, perhaps a little further as well in the film? That, that the, the, the impact of that, that this Strange does, for five years at least, commit trillions of people to a dusty fate. And that must weigh pretty heavily. Totally. I, I think, yeah, I think that's the thing. I, I think that Stephen, I do think it was the only way. I, I, I think that he did make the only play they had, at least so far as he saw. Mm. But it has weighed on him. And then you, and I, and I think the way he's able to sleep at night is he's thinking, well, I am the, I'm the best, I'm the best sorcerer uh, and, I, and I know best. And then over the course of this movie, he encounters, America tells him about the version of himself that betrayed her. And then he encounters the version from 838 who actually fell to the dark hold and yeah. caused an incursion and destroyed an entire universe. And then he meets Sinister Strange, who went full on evil and was serial killing Stranges throughout the multiverse. And so his confidence is shaken a bit uh, because it's like, well, maybe I'm not. If I'm not meant to be a hero across the multiverse, then can I trust my own instincts as much as I as much as I thought I could? And I, I just I think that rattling your hero's confidence is a is a great sort of ringer to put them there's also something really interesting with him that that runs throughout both uh, strange movies which is this overweening arrogance that he has uh that he thinks for the most part anyway that he is beyond consequences for his actions that the bill will never come due for him and Where you where you get him to at a point in in Multiverse of Madness is you you show him the consequences of his actions for the other strangers. So he has absolute tangible proof of where he can go. He could end up as Sinister Strange. He could end up as you know a zombie Strange, a Defender Strange, or he could end up as this sort of megalomaniacal guy who, as you say, causes an incursion. And despite all that, he still uses the Darkhold at the end. So he takes that risk knowing for the first time that there might be consequences and and there are there are consequences to it can you can you talk about about bringing him to that point and and was the end always the end you had in mind we talked about many different endings there there were probably happier endings at at one point you know but it felt like you you said you hit it on the head that the bill finally has to come due and i and i think that that's the the thing that Steven, over the course of this movie, he doesn't fundamentally change who he is mm. in the same way that Indiana Jones doesn't ever really fundamentally change who he is over the course of a movie. But I do think what Steven gains over the course of this adventure is a a whole new perspective on who he is, which is maybe an even more potent uh transformation there's an understanding of who he is and why he is that way and it felt like okay that's an evolution for the character 
and now now we want to send him now we want to send him into a new chapter with with that bill finally has came due you know and and the other thing too is is we see wanda she says throughout the movie um you know i do this stuff and i'm a villain uh i become the enemy Mm. Uh, you break the rules and become a hero. It doesn't seem fair. Wanda faces consequences for using a dark hole. And we wanted Steven to face those consequences as well. And so it was just a matter of what will those be? And then we got excited about kind of the idea that final, like sleep away camp, like that final shot of just what the hell. <laughs> uh, and... So yeah, that's how you end up with that third eye. <laughs> so hang on a second. So the the final shot where where Strange is uh, screaming in the streets. That was your equivalent of a sleepaway camp with the uh, the big the big the big reveal that I don't want to spoil for people. But there's a there's a great twist in that movie. Well, what's yeah? It's like the last shot. Like, like I'm just thinking of movies where like the last shot is like yeah. the oh what like yeah that, that's. <laughs> That's uh, yes. <laughs> that is a cracking inspiration. I don't know. We watched Sleep. I I saw that movie for the first time in the Rick and Morty room once, and I was like, "This is the most fucking crazy thing I've ever seen in my life." I couldn't <laughs> believe it existed. <laughs> um, but that but that great horror convention of weirdly, I like associated most with the Goosebumps books I read as a kid, where like on the last page you think that the day is saved and then there's some crazy consequence or it's like the monster isn't dead and he drags you under the bed and you're dead. You know, it's like, it's that thing. Uh, we, we wanted that kind of horror type ending there at the very end. Interesting. Cause, uh, cause obviously in the grand tradition, it says Dr. Strange will return, uh, but I'm fascinated to see what version of Dr. Strange it is that returns and what, what, what condition he's going to be in when he does return, especially from leaping into the, what looks like, the dark dimension with, uh, with Clea at the end. Yeah. I mean that, you know, look, you, you can, you can get on Clea's Wikipedia and, and read who she is. You know, she's a, she's Dormammu's niece, which is insane. Uh, and so, so her, her history is tied into the dark dimension. Um, and so, yeah, it's an interesting place to send him at a time when he's already perhaps more consumed by darkness than ever before. Um, and she's an interesting foil for him to go on that journey with. As you mentioned there, when you, when you came on board, there was a different villain in place for this movie. And, you know, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about Wanda. Um, uh, at what point did you, did you hit upon that notion that she was going to be the antagonist uh, of the movie and that it was going to be Wanda who was sending these interdimensional beings, these giant octopuses with, with huge eyes after, after America at the beginning. Yeah. Cause th- th- that's a big turn. That's a big twist about 20 minutes in. Yeah. That, that was as when, when COVID happened and the movie's start date got pushed, to to the end of 2020 um sam and i had an opportunity to to essentially say okay you know if if we wanted to start with a blank slate what what would we make this thing and so the you know that that was 
actually was the idea that we really built around was this is the story of strange protecting America uh, from Wanda, you know, going out of his comfort zone to protect a little girl from a witch felt like kind of a classic fun horror story. And uh, did you, did you talk at all? Cause you have sinister strange uh, at one point. Did you talk at all about making, making him uh, the, the villain of the movie or having a strange versus strange versus strange versus strange? Yeah. I mean, we, we, we talked about that, but it was never, that was never as interesting to me as Wanda. You know, I thought that she would be dynamite and she is. And I, and I felt like there was, there was so much to do with her character in that antagonistic role. So yeah, that, that was, I, I, I think once we all kind of collectively stared down the barrel of, wow, what would this movie look like if Wanda was truly the bad guy the whole way through it was such an exciting prospect. We couldn't walk away from it. It's a, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, turn as well, because, you know, there, there have been moments in the, in the MCU where characters have been adversarial, uh, of course, you know, Loki <laughs> being just one of them, you know, Civil War turns on the, the sort of enmity between Tony and Steve, but turning Wanda into a, a full blown villain is, is a really bold move. Was there, what sort of discussions were there about that? And, and, and also leaning into the Scarlet Witch mythology in a way that, that the MCU has largely avoided with Mount Wanda Gore and prophecies and, and all kinds of stuff. Right. I mean, there were, yeah, there was a million discussions of, of just, are, are we accelerating too much? You know, you can't, you can't do it if you're selling out the character. And we ultimately, yeah, I don't think we would have done it if we had felt at all like we were doing that. You know, we read the WandaVision scripts, watched Wanda, you know, watched WandaVision, were intimately familiar with the journey she was going on in that show. And it felt like, you know, again, even though at the, at the end of that show, she does the right thing she walks away with the dark hold mm-hmm. a new knowledge of her tremendous amount of power that she has uh and a lot of unresolved grief and anger justifiable anger and i also think that you know the other thing is i think that wanda has a is a really defensible point of view in the movie about America, which is Stephen, she's a walking multiversal portal. She's, you know, like, like she's a kid who can't control her powers. You know, you, you don't know what kind of terrible stuff she's going to do. You know, it's a sound hmm. argument. I'm, I'm making this universe safer by hmm. taking her off the board. And I just, I think that, I don't know. It's interesting. She's, mm. she's ultimately consumed by her desire to, to get her kids back. And, and I think the dark hold is whispering in her ear and I don't know. It was great. And Lizzie's a blast in the park <laughs> yes. so with how it turned out. Absolutely. And, uh, and of course she has that moment of, uh, that, 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 that epiphany at the end, that moment of, of, realization that she's she's perhaps perhaps gone a smidge too far <laughs> this time around and you know, can you talk about that about about crafting the end for wanda and what looks like the end for wanda yeah i mean we knew that we wanted to 
Well, first off, we knew that you can't beat Wanda in a in a fist fight, even though America tries. Yeah, can't really beat her in a magic fight. You know, the, the, that it was <clears throat> that the way to beat her was was going to be you know with emotion, really. Um, and so that was, I think, that was Sam. I mean, I Sam's idea was that. America taking her to to that universe and letting her kids see her as a monster. And in that moment, you know, she falls to her knees and she's, you know, she finally becomes our Wanda again. Mm. She realizes that she's lost herself to the dark hole, to the mythology of the Scarlet Witch, whatever. She's able to to stand down. It's great. It's, I mean, it's a tragedy. It's, it's sad and it's heartbreaking, you know, and uh, I think that's why it's good. And it's, it's so easy to see why she would be seduced by it. Not just a dark hole, not just a possibility of, of finding you know, versions of her kids that, that exist in, in, in other worlds, which is wild given that she created them from her herself. Um, but you know, she gets to Mount Wantecore and she looks on this mountainside and there is this prophecy, this giant statue of herself. And, you know, she can feel, I guess, the power that she could could inherit. And you can see how you, your head might be turned by that. Well, and, and, and Lizzie's saying, you know, look, <laughs> lucky for you, I'm not Thanos. <laughs> there, there, there is a, there is a, an engraving of me ruling the universe behind you. I could do that. I, I could turn off gravity if I wanted to and, uh, and launch you into the sun, but I'm not going to do that. Um, she really just wants her kids. And, you know, I, I, and then there's the interesting bit where Wong calls her on her bullshit a little bit where it's like, okay, why not just make America open a portal for you? Why do you need her power? Why do you need to kill the girl and take her power? And I think that's when you get into a little bit of <clears throat> Wanda's corruption, her, her greed, whatever, whatever you want to call it. it yeah. It's like, she's somebody who's had everything taken from her and she's hedging against that this time by saying, no, that's not enough. Um, I need the girl's power. And I think it's because Wanda does feel that she has, because she wasn't able to control the events of her life, she's lost her family, um, her brother, the man she loved, you know, even, even her kids. And so by taking America's power, she can control everything and she can guard herself against ever being hurt again. That's what she wants. That's, that's what this whole quest is really about is I never want to get hurt again. Um, which I think is a understandable quest for somebody like her who's been through so much trauma. And and was that, was that always a way that she, she went out that you brought Wanda's story to a, to a close here where she brings the mountain down upon herself and she, um, you know, whether that's the last we see of, of Wanda and Lizzie in the MCU remains to be seen, but it, it feels definitive. Yeah, it, it felt like, 
we wanted to to bring down the mountain we and we wanted her to to use the might of her power and 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 perhaps whatever of america's power she's absorbed to that moment to to surge her chaos magic out into the multiverse and destroy every version of the dark hole. And I, and I think that's, that's the kind of gift she gives every Wanda elsewhere in the multiverse is, you know, they're not going to be tempted by this book the way she is. Um, and you see, you see what the dark hole has done to everybody across the multiverse in this movie. And so she is, she walks away doing something really heroic and saving a lot of lives. As a result of that, even though he is then corrupted by the dark hold and, and grows the third eye and uh, presumably a, a much darker personality for a while after that, I'm guessing that strangest dreams are a little bit happier <laughs> than they are at the beginning of the movie. Uh, and I love the idea of dreamwalking and I love the way you introduce both strange and Wanda in this movie, both, both coming from, from dreams that leave them in a very, very different way. And I love the way that Sam introduces both characters turning, you know, turning their world, inverting their world. Uh, upon coming out of a dream. Can you talk about about that, about the notion of dreamwalking uh, and where that came from? The notion of dreams and their connection to the multiverse, that was a great idea that we, that we did inherit from Scott. And then that, that, that was something that, because I think their movie was originally much more focused on dreams. And then we were able to take that and apply it to our movie, which was much more about the multiverse. And so that was really cool just as a way to see these alternate lives of these characters. And then a very fun discovery in in the writing of this movie was dreamwalking as a, as a concept, as a spell or whatever. The, the notion do a seance and possess your alternate self in the multiverse. I was like, I don't know if I've heard of that before. (laughs) Seems cool. It's creepy. Uh, And the way that Sam, that, that might be my favorite sequence in the whole movie when Wanda possesses her alternate self. And it's like the peas are rolling around and the, the head, her head turns in the frame or in the picture frame and it ends in that moment. It's it's the best moment in the movie theater when uh, Lizzie looks straight at camera. Yes. uh, Looks, looks straight at the audience. So yeah, that, that was great. And it it was one of those instances where it's like, how many things in this movie can we set up for Sam to just do his thing? And that was a great example of that. (laughs) Did you write Lizzie looks, well, not Lizzie, but but did you write uh, Wanda looks at the camera? I can't remember. That was probably Sam. Anything good in the movie was Sam. Uh, I just, so I just, I give, I can't remember what I wrote, but I, but I'd be willing to bet that was probably just him. Okay. So, so for example, George Lucas famously would just simply write, they fight and then he would choreograph this big lightsaber fight. Uh, And so did you write, they fight with music notes or just they fight or, or what happened there towards the end? I think, well, yeah, you're really revealing me as, as, as having done nothing on the movie that the, the music, the music notes that was Doug Leffler, um, who one of Sam's great storyboard artists that he's worked with forever. That was, he, he brought that 
Um, so I'm trying to think of what I did right. Michael, take the credits. Take the credit. Claim it. Claim it. Doug's not here. Doug's not here. Yeah, not much, man. I mean, <laughs> I I wrote. Well, I put Rentra in the movie. He's there because of me. <laughs> I was like the Minotaur. We should have the Minotaur there. Yeah, let's do it. I did that. Um, that's pretty much it. That's it. That's, that's it. Well, you know. That's that's fine. That's fine. That's enough to be getting on with. But uh, but but one thing. I mean, I spoke to Richie uh, a couple of days ago, Richie Palmer, and he said that you know when you were writing this movie, you were you had so many lists of things that could be in the film. You know, so many lists of different worlds they can go to, different multiverses, different members of the Illuminati, different outcomes, different strangers that we meet. Uh, so, you know, did you drive yourself almost to the brink of madness writing this uh, in a way? Totally. To- totally. Not almost. Past. I mean, it, it was <laughs> it was a crazy movie because you got to remember I wrote this movie really the bulk of at least the the major conceptualization and scripting was done from March, 2020 to November, 2020. And then we were shooting, but that was just the heart, you know, the meat of the pandemic and so, and like the absolute terror of like wiping down groceries. I'm like wiping down frozen pizzas and then going in and being like, all right, Wanda's killing the Illuminati. <laughs> like, so um, it was, yeah, it was a totally maddening experience, but uh, one, one that was a lot of fun. And, and really, I, I think that we just, we tried to keep it as simple as possible. In fact, you know, I, I never wanted the movie to get too unwieldy because I know this multiverse stuff can can actually become a little bit inaccessible um, if you're not up to date on everything that's come before it. And so that, that was really top of mind for me and especially Sam. Is that one of the reasons why um, we meet three different versions of Strange in the movie? Um, and it was that something that you had to keep track of in a way. Uh, first of all, can you talk about deciding what's, what versions of Strange we're going to meet, uh, which, which feels very important, but not wanting to overload because again, you could have had strange, strange, strange. You could have had an, an, an abundance of strangers in, in in this film. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I actually felt like, I felt like in Loki, we I kind of done the meeting a zillion versions of yourself thing. I, I felt like Loki had had been had had a little more of that Rick and Morty energy, and I was and it was like I wanted I want to do something different here. I didn't want to just do a multiverse hopping movie, but rather wanted to really invest in the reality of a smaller number of universes. Because if you're going to build out the stakes of a, of a multiverse in the MCU, you need to believe that these universes are real places. And so that means spending time there and, and, you know, believing in their histories and in their, you know, and, and their characters and everything. And so as far as the strangers in each universe, it was just driven by character in our own Steven's journey. And so the math that we landed on was, well, they're a, they're three 
exchanges that are escalating in terms of evil. They've all, they've all ultimately done the bad thing. Um, and each one worse than the last. And by the end, you know, it, uh, like I said, it's, it's just rocked our Stevens confidence in, in himself a bit. So, so you go from the strange of the 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 defender strange that we meet at the beginning, where we see that moment of of corruption, and again he thinks he's doing it for the right reasons. He thinks he's doing it for the greater good, uh, but it's still killing a child uh, ultimately. And then we right. we go forward to the the other strange who has inadvertently caused an incursion, which is pretty bad. I mean, you know, shouldn't be doing that. Uh, and then finally we have Sinister Strange, and Sinister Strange's world is one we don't spend a lot of time in, but. I just want to ask real quick about about that world and establishing Sinister Strange's world. This feels like a world that he has destroyed completely in a way, that there is no Illuminati in this world. There are no Avengers. There's no Fantastic Four or X-Men. They've been dealt with a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair to assume that, that that world is the result of an incursion, you know, or or, or some some form of it, either an incursion or, or what an attempt to prevent an incursion, you know, that, that is at least one potential outcome of the collision of universes uh, brought about by the kind of multiversal tampering that, that that sinister strange is doing. And so, you know, that's, when Clea shows up and says, you caused an incursion, you know, we got to fix it. That's, that's the sort of thing that, that ultimately, you know, might, might be at stake. All right. And uh, I, I just want to talk real quick about the Illuminati, um, because I, I know that there's been all sorts of, you know, talk and, and, and different interviews as well about who the other members of the Illuminati could have been and, I think we 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 tiptoed around the idea that that uh, we spoke for the magazine that that there might be a Loki cameo in this, and the internet was convinced that we were going to see Tom Cruise as as Tony Stark. Uh, but can you talk about that sequence, deciding who the Illuminati were going to be, and then the the real rug pull, the 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 thing that you know, the thing that 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 nips any talk of fan service in the bud, which is killing them all brutally. <laughs> where, where did that come from? You know, there were several different iterations um, of who that group might be. This is the all-star lineup that we ultimately we ultimately shifted the entire Illuminati shoot into our additional photography section just so we could get this lineup because it felt like, wow, like th- this is every single one of these characters is a cleanup hitter. And we were so lucky to get all of them. And so I guess the one thing I, I will take credit for is killing them all. Uh, maybe that was my, my big contribution to the movie was um, that Wanda would show up and massacre the Illuminati um, as a way to, to let you know that, the, the, look, this movie means business. Uh, and you need to really be afraid of the Scarlet Witch. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and then the last thing, uh, Michael, is what's what's the thing in the movie that uh, that you're most proud of? And was it the toughest nut to crack? 
I mean, the, the entire thing was, was it's hard to separate into pieces because making the whole thing was so, such a challenge during COVID and so many people working so hard. I'm, pr- I'm, I'm, I'm weirdly, I'm always so proud of that conversation between Wong and Strange at the end where, Wong, where, where he asked Wong if he's happy and they have this very honest moment between two very powerful people kind of admitting that saving the universe isn't enough mm. to, to satisfy you and, and, and make you happy. That's, and it's left unresolved, but at least they have their friendship. At least they don't have to go through it alone. And you finally get that, that bow. I love, I love that moment. And in terms of the, the toughest nut to crack, I mean, I, you know, Dead strange in the in that third act that that was a we we were <laughs> for a long time we were like what are we how are we going to get him out of this shitty universe uh, in a way that's cool and and how you know it's just how do you have a cool third act that isn't just like shooting lights that was myself and Richie Palmer we we were sitting in some freezing cold office in London and kind of stumbled upon the idea of possessing that dead body uh, and dead strange was born. So that, that was a, that was a good revelation that, that when you have, say you could only do that when you have Sam Raimi directing, fortunately. Yeah. With all the wraiths and the uh, Stephen strange, you have violated the, the laws of the universe exactly. all, all, shrieking at us, pure army of darkness. Uh, yeah, exactly. That stuff is great. So that, that's really interesting because I thought that, uh, I thought that I was baked in right from the off because, you know, obviously we've got Chekhov's gun uh, and uh, you know, Tarantino recently did Chekhov's flamethrower, uh, but <laughs> I've never seen Chekhov's corpse before. So that, that was, a, <laughs> that was a new one. Well, it's all, uh, it's all part of a, it's all made to look like it's part of a plan. <laughs> Grant. Well, listen, on that note, Michael, uh, a pleasure as ever. I'm glad to go and uh, best luck with, with everything you're doing next. Thanks, man. Cheers. All right, see you. Thank you. Take care. And that was Michael Waldron, the writer of Dr. Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, talking about how Sleepaway Camp home of one of the most shocking twists in horror movies, informed an MCU entry. Wild stuff. And that is it for this Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness spoiler special. Hope you enjoyed it and that it gave you a new and fresh insight into the movie and why certain things happened the way they did. When we did the first Multiverse of Madness spoiler special, which is basically just Team Empire, prattling on about the film for three hours straight i promised you that we would do a listener question special and now that the movie is widely available on disney plus i hope to do that in the next couple of weeks so if you have any questions or comments for the team to tackle slide into my dms i'm at chris hewitt on twitter i'm off to comb dr strange in the multiverse of madness with a forensic eye for detail and hopefully Find that Evil Dead 2 nod in the second post-credit sting. Groovy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.